Leaders Talk, the interview podcast portraying leaders who are committed to better leadership, better organizations, and a better world. Powered by Leadership Choices. So now I was part of the minority and it made me reflect on the privileges that I had had being part of a majority, including not having to think about it. And I hadn't really experienced you know, it in that way while I was part of the majority, but certainly when I was a minority, an immigrant, it came sharply in focus that I had all these privileges being part of the majority. You know, transformation happens at the intersection of people and processes. So you have to impact the hearts and minds of people, and you have to impact the systems and the processes. I used to say that, you know, the the end game is to work myself out of a job. I don't see that happening in many lifetimes because these things evolve and change. And, uh, I, I think it's human nature and we've got to continue to keep working at it. So. Hello and welcome to Leaders Talk, the biographic interview podcast for better leadership, better organizations, and a better world. My name is Carson Draht, and I'm one of the managing partners of Leadership Choices. My guest today is a global figurehead of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Her name is uh, Dr. Rohini Anand, and she used to be the global diversity officer of Sodexo. Sodexo is a food and facility management company um, operating thousands and thousands of uh, cafeterias, for example, at uh, corporations, at hospitals. Um, it used to be the 19th largest company in the world with over 400,000 employees in 80 countries. And uh, Rohini um, is, uh, has been in charge of building or developing Sodexo from a company that was in big trouble uh, was facing discrimination lawsuits, costing them millions and millions um, of dollars in penalties, and even more so in reputation and lost customers. And 18 years later, when she left, Sodexo had become the synony synonymous for um, a role model, a trailblazer in the domain of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And in our conversation, um, she talks about what were the steps, what were the setbacks, what were the approaches, what were her learnings in order to get there. Um, so if you are a leader that cares for diversity, equity, and inclusion, or if you are a DEI expert, this is a must-listen-to podcast. Um, so I, I highly recommend that to you, um, and I guarantee you that you will leave the podcast with more reflections and more insights. And please do feel free to share those insights with us. Um, send us a mail at leaderstalk at leadership-choices.com. Looking very much forward to hearing your thoughts. But now let's go right in the conversation with Dr. Rohini Anand. And uh, I wish you some good insights um, with this conversation. A warm welcome to Dr. Rohini Anand. Welcome to our humble podcast, Leaders Talk. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Thank you. You are, 
I think it's fair to say, one of the figureheads of the global DEI movement. You've been a global diversity officer with Sodexo, and we will talk about Sodexo a bit more, for 18 years. What was your story that you arrived at this topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion, Dr. Anand? Yeah, so that's a great question. And just, you know, by way of background, I actually grew up in uh, Mumbai, India. And growing up in India, I was surrounded by others who pretty much looked like me. I was, you know, part of the majority, part of the majority religion as well. And, uh, you know, growing up in India, I really didn't have a consciousness of my identity. I took it for granted. Moving to the United States, moving to North America was an inflection point in my journey. And I went from somebody who saw herself as the center of her world to being a minority, to being an immigrant, to being a foreigner. And that was, you know, really deeply transformed how I thought about myself. So now I was part of the minority and it made me reflect on the privileges that I had had being part of a majority, including not having to think about it. And I hadn't really experienced you know, it in that way while I was part of the majority, but certainly when I was a minority, an immigrant, it came sharply in focus that I had all these privileges being part of the majority, which I hadn't, you know, given much thought to. So, you know, I, I, I realized that identity is very situational, it's very, very fluid, and it informed my work, it informed my research, it continues to inform who I am today. And so I, I would say that this vocation is very personal for me. And at the heart of diversity, equity, and inclusion work is, you know, the notion of being an outsider. Um, and, and so my work is very much, you know, is about leveling the playing field. Um, and I, I like to say that my avocation and my vocation are perfectly aligned um, because this whole notion of being an outsider, being an, a, a, a minority is at the heart of diversity, equity, and inclusion work. Um, and, and recognizing one's own privilege and using it for the benefit of others as well is, is very much a part of, the, of this work. So, and, and when you decided, so, sorry, go yeah, ahead, Dr. No, no, no. So you you'd said, so you'd said, no, call me Rohini. That's fine. So you had said, um, you know, how I came to this work. So this was, so that was my sort of, you know, my entry into the work, my own personal journey. And I did my um, my PhD. So my academics was also an identity formation. It was on the movement of people and identity formation. So it really sort of echoed my own lived experience. And uh, so I was an academic very briefly, but I wanted to do something more applied, something where I could really see the transformation of this in, in this work on people's you know, hearts and minds, on the culture of an organization. And that's where I decided to join an organization. I first actually was doing consulting for several years um, in the nonprofit world, in hospitals and in the education sector, and then decided to go internal and join Sodexo to really sort of engage with one system, one structure, one organization, and see some, some very deep change within that organization. So okay. that's what brought me to the work. Because it's, it's very much who I am. It's very personal to who I am. And I say my life and my work are, you know, inseparable, if you will. Yeah, that's great. And if you take us back to that point in time when you decided to to leave India, I mean, that is a mm -hmm. big step uh, to go somewhere else to study. Also foreseeing that, you know, maybe you didn't realize at that time, but from being part of the majority to becoming a minority, right. what informed that judgment and, 
yeah, I mean, what age were you when you decided to leave? So, you know, I was just shy of my 20th birthday. So, you know, and I didn't know anybody um, particularly closely. I had, you know, sort of contacts. But the decision was not a very sort of clearly well thought out, you know, decision of life, you know, as as somebody at that age would have. It was my father who had actually come to the United States. He studied in California as a young man in, in the 1940s. And he was a gold medalist in physics in India, but got a scholarship to study film, never having handled a camera in all his life. So he went to California and he studied film and he worked, you know, for the likes of Cary Grant in Hollywood after he did his degree. There's some beautiful pictures of him with Cary Grant. Um, and then traveled through the South in, uh, in in Southern America in the 1940s. So faced his share of discrimination. But to his credit, he never, you know, shared those stories. He always shared this sort of, you know, his wonderful stories about North America, about the United States. And encouraged me when I wanted to do my master's. He encouraged me. And I have to say that I really respect him for allowing me to discover my own journey and not you know, biasing me in any way. So that was really the inspiration. It was, you know, my father who sort of encouraged me and and my my grandfather, who was an academic, who, uh, you know, sort of always encouraged me to stand on my feet and to get a PhD and to study further. So I think it was the two of them that really, you know, uh, helped to sort of shape the future of my life. Wow. Um About one and a half years ago, we held a conference on structural racism in Europe. Mm -hmm. And one of the theme was to find out what people experience that are not part of the mainstream uh, group that people like me, for example, don't experience. So I wonder when you arrived in the US, how did you how did you realize that you were a minority and how did it feel for you? Yeah. So I think, you know, as I said, you know, growing up, I was part of the majority, really not reflecting on my identity. And it was only when I was identified by as a minority did I realize those privileges. But it was it was almost immediate. It was immediate because it's people's perceptions of me that defined my identity eventually. Right. Um, so it's how people saw me, regardless of, you know, so many years living in the United States. Um It's it's how people see my skin color. It's how people perceive my accent. How people see me physically is you know how they identify who I am. I may feel very different if I if I look at my children who look very much like me. They're extremely American. They're born here. You know their their way of thinking, their values, but still the perception of them at first glance of of people is that you know they are. Um, part of a minority. So it's people's perceptions of you that that ultimately define you regardless of how you perceive yourself. You know, it's it's how people kind of put you in a box. Yeah. That, um, okay. you know, uh, that, 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 you know, makes you sort of um, experience things differently. Okay. My colleagues would not. So, you know, I, and I, and I think it's, it's that feeling of, you know, being defined regardless of how you feel but also being an outsider to a culture in my case that was the case as well you know it was an, i was an outsider to to the mainstream culture 
Um, and that is another sort of defining aspect of identity. And Rohini, do you recall what informed your decision of study? I mean, you could have gone in different directions, right. film probably being one of them. <laughs> uh, you choose your path. What was what were criteria that you recall? Yeah, so that's, you know, I mean, if I haven't given it that much thought, but it was, so it was this whole notion of movement of people and identity formation, which was my lived experience, right? And I actually looked at, um, I actually went back to India to do my research. And I lived in a village in Goa, in, uh, you know, which used to be a Portuguese colony. On the West Coast. And I yeah. looked on the West Coast. And I looked at the movement of people from there into the cities and how their identity shaped and what caused them to move. So it really was, in a sense, a self-exploratory kind of an exercise, right? Um, but, you know, the, I ended up with different conclusions um, in that, you know, it was, from this particular village anyway, it was people who were not very integrated that actually moved for better opportunities um, and were able to move up in terms of their social caste. That was the important piece, Mm -hmm. you know. So, yeah, I mean, I think it was more of a reflection of my own life experiences that I wanted to explore deeper um, through my research. I see. And and then fast forward, you did your studies, your master's, you did your PhD, you worked a bit in consulting, and then you realized, I really want to work inside an organization to yeah. have an impact. Now, before we uh, talk about your career at Sodexo, let's talk about Sodexo itself. Yeah. Um, can you walk us through, I mean, Sodexo is a name that many people have heard, but maybe don't know exactly where to put it. So it's okay. one of the 20th biggest company in the world, I believe. So what does Sodexo do? So it is, it was rather, the one of the largest, 20th largest, 19th largest company in the world, um, primarily in the food service and facilities management business. Um, so, you know, very geographically dispersed footprint. Um, you know, when I was working there at the height, we had about 465,000 employees um, in 80 countries. But what's interesting is that the employees actually work out of client locations. So there's very few people at headquarters. Most of the employees are at the hospitals where they're providing services or the universities or the schools or the corporations where they're providing services. So that makes it a little bit of a unique model because it's geographically dispersed. So when you talk about changing the culture in an organization, it's very challenging because it's not changing it in 50 or 100 plants. It's changing it in thousands, 30,000, 35,000 locations around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other piece that makes it challenging is that a lot of the employees actually work, are very closely aligned or identify very closely with the client, with you know, the hospital and the values of the hospital of the university or the corporation. So when the values are aligned, it's, um, it's great. But when the values are not, it can be challenging. But yeah, that's what Sodexo does. It's... Uh, and I had, that's the main part of the business. And then it has, you know, a voucher business, which is called benefits and rewards and other ancillary businesses as well around, uh, you know, home care, et cetera. So very much in the service industry, though. And Understood. it's headquartered in France. And so that means that, and, for example, a chef or a worker in a cafeteria, in a corporation or in a hospital, they don't go to the Sodexo office. They They just go to the hospital. They work with co-workers. Uh, but they don't see 
the Sodexo company as such. No, exactly right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that, that that adds a layer of challenge when you're trying to transform a culture. Mm-hmm. Now, when you at one point you were asked to join. Um, as I think it was a corporate social responsibility and diversity officer. Um, and, and that was, I think, back in 2002, if I'm not mistaken. A- at that time, something had happened at Sodexo. There was, even before you joined, there was a lawsuit, a discrimination lawsuit. So what was the situation that you mm-hmm. encountered when you arrived? So, yeah, I, I actually joined in 2002, and you're absolutely right. There was a uh, class action discrimination lawsuit filed by African-American employees at Sodexo. It was a promotion discrimination lawsuit. And, um, you know, it predated me. Um, Sodexo had bought out the shares of Marriott Management Services Uh, these were long-standing employees of Marriott Management Services that Sodexo had acquired. Um, Sodexo was focused on, you know, things it had grown basically from 25,000 to 125,000 employees in North America. So focused on sort of, you know, the transactional things like payroll and uh, not as focused on processes, etc. So this was a lawsuit that about six months after I joined, it was certified as a class action finally settled in 2005 with a consent decree and a settlement of over 80 million dollars um you know was part of the settlement so so the situation at Sodexo when I joined was basically um it, it was very much of a, a white male leadership team it was an organization where um, minorities or people of color or women did not necessarily feel a sense of belonging, didn't see opportunities to advance within the organization, and not much focus had been put on that. Um, so it was, you know, working very fast and very hard with the HR team and with the legal team to really sort of address the situation that we were in. So initially, I was actually joined not as a global um DEI head or chief diversity officer, I joined as a vice president of diversity and inclusion just for North America. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, so, so it was about changing people's mindsets. And the initial piece was a lot of resistance that we're doing this just to check the box. We're doing this just for legal reasons. Um, you know, there's really no benefit for me as a white man, my career is over in this company because now we're just going to promote women and we're going to promote minorities. And that was a mindset and that was a situation that I stepped into in response to your question. It was later, you know, about five years into this that I actually was asked by Michelle Londad, who was a CEO who had interviewed me and given me the position. And I reported it to him for one year. I reported to HR and then reported into the CEO. When he became the global CEO, he asked me to replicate what I had done on a global scale. And then subsequently, I took on the corporate responsibility role as well. So what was the role of Michel Landel in this? I mean, he first he was the first one who or he interviewed you and he was part of the, the decision to get you on board. How was his position being part of the majority, being part of the white male leadership elite? Um, what did he what was his agenda? Yeah, so I think it's a, I mean, I, I think that Michelle Londell is one of the most uh, amazing leaders. 
Um, so he's he's a very sort of global citizen. He had worked in Africa for Sodexo in what was then known as a remote site business. So he had lived and worked globally um, and in Africa. And, you know, he had worked in, in North America as well. So he was open. He was very much of a, um, you know, very global in his thinking. Um, and he was willing to basically take some risks. He was willing to make some bold moves. So when in a year when he made me report to him, it sent a really strong message to the organization that this is important to the CEO. Uh, this is important to the organization. And therefore, my role is actually sitting in the C-suite. So his role in all this was to position me for success. Without that positioning, I don't think I would have been as successful. So, you know, together with him, he made it a strategic priority. So it was called out in the strategy. And when people talked about their strategy for marketing or for, you know, um, whatever business development, et cetera, they would also talk about their DEI strategy. So it was very much up there. So he made it very visible. And also together with him, we put in place some incentives. So we put in place targets and linked incentives of the executive team first and then the rest of the managers to those targets. So this was basically, you know, him um, sort of approaching it in a way. And I think part of it was, you know, as a French man, uh, he certainly had to learn about issues of race. And he did learn about issues of race in his role in North America. The head of HR was a black man, African-American man. And he was very close to him. So he learned from him, but he learned from it, sort of also observing what was happening, um, you know, to um, black people in the United States um, and didn't want that for his organization. So it was a very difficult time for the company, but I think it was his openness as a leader, his vulnerability, his ability to be humble and to learn, and then to make some bold moves to position it that really helped it to be successful. Understood. And, and so it means when you joined, the company was in a bit of struggle with regards to diversity there was not a bit major struggle <laughs> sorry for that understatement um and and uh, it was seen maybe as an alibi function as i have to check the box function exactly and when you left sodexo is like a synonym for diversity equity inclusion a role model a trailblazer now 18 years are in between can you so two questions I get. What does a diversity officer actually do? I mean, really, mm -hmm. but what are the means? What are the levers? What's the power? What's the staff? And what was the journey um, that you that you took? Yeah, so I think those are huge questions. <laughs> so in terms of the journey, and I'll, I'll get to, you know, what does a diversity, equity, and inclusion officer do? But you're absolutely right. So we started with this, and one of the CEOs said we made lemonade out of lemons. So we were, you know, this was the, you know, situation we were in. But what happened was that over time, as the leaders started to see the benefit of diversity, equity, and inclusion to the organization, they started coming on board. And, and so Srexo became known as a leader in diversity and the brand became synonymous with the leadership in diversity. And when we settled this lawsuit, as I mentioned, you know, in 2005, 
the press carried some information on it, but it was it was basically positioned as Sodexo is a leader in DEI and they settled this lawsuit. So as a result, it didn't, didn't cost us any you know, business. But the way we got to that point, and I'll sort of talk about the steps along the way, but what the tipping point really was, you know, I mentioned that it was intimidating that Sodexo was in so many different locations. And I was sort of scratching my head you know, how do we bring about culture change when it's such a dispersed organization? But well, we started rolling out the communications. And remember, this is only North America so far. Rolling out the communications, rolling out the education, the training, the materials in all these locations, about 13,000 in the United States. And the client organization started seeing what Sodexo was doing. And our managers, if you think about a corporation, the food service manager, you know, is fairly, you know, not, not a priority of the CEO, let's put it that way, right? But what happened was when they saw the materials and they saw what Sodexo was doing, they started to get taking an interest and in saying, you know, can you share this with us? And then our manager all of a sudden had a lot of visibility because now let's say you have a company that has a council, a DEI council. The manager, Sodexo manager says, look, I can, I can share some materials with you. I can, you know, help you. I can support you in this. And all of a sudden, his or her profile is elevated in that organization. So fast forward, what started to happen was that these managers who were largely white male managers, middle-level managers, who had said openly that, you know, my career is over in this company, now suddenly see that, look, this can actually help me with my business. I can build more relationships. I can expand. I can get access to the C-suite. So, you know, in the, the tipping point, what happened was that my team would be called on regularly to come and make presentations to the C-suite. So I would go and present to an executive team of, you know, any company, you can Unilever or Procter & Gamble or whatever. And in that process, I would, you know, take some of our Sodexo managers to share their testimonies as well and share what Sodexo had done and, and, you know, how we had gotten to where we were. And that elevated Sodexo's profile, elevated the manager's profile, and helped sometimes to open doors for more business. So it became a differentiator, it became a competitive advantage. If they couldn't get to a C-suite, the manager would reach out to my team and say, you know, I'm having a challenge really getting to this company. We want to put in a bid, but we need some relationships. Can you help me? So in one year, my team would touch over $1 billion worth of business. So it became something that really did, um, you know, help with business growth for the organization. That was a tipping point. Now, how we got from where we started to this point was a very complex process. And it's honestly, it's not, and that's what I talk about in my book, Karsten, because it's not, it's not, you know, a, a checklist or, uh, that you can use. It really is what I found in doing this work in the US globally is there are certain principles that provide a through line that recur again and again with every organization that I've done this work. And it's those principles that help to inform the culture change. So it's not a series of initiatives, it's changing and transforming the culture. And I do say in the book that, you know, transformation happens at the intersection of people and processes. So you have to impact the hearts and minds of people and you have to impact the systems and the processes, you know, so it's, it's incrementally going from working with the leadership team 
you know, working with changing their mindsets. And sometimes, you know, it's about meeting each leader where they are because each leader has their own ecosystem of beliefs and you have to meet them where they are and then incrementally move them. And there's, you know, the book, I have lots of strategies in terms of doing that. So changing people's mindsets, also informing the systems, you know, so making sure that you really in, embedded diversity, equity, and inclusion in all your systems and processes, whether it's talent processes or elsewhere, having a very clearly articulated reason why you're doing this. So the reason was it was about talent for Sodexo. And, you know, you when you have people, you've got the right skills, you've got the right people, um, you know, you've got an inclusive culture, you get innovation, innovative solutions for clients and for customers. And also it's about diversity being a differentiator for the brand to help to grow the business. So you've got to be clear about that, uh, about, you know, why this is happening. And then you've, you know, got to be able to measure and hold your teams accountable. So I think, you know, it's it's incrementally moving from changing, working with the leadership, working to educate the organization about why we're doing this giving them tools and skills, looking at your systems and processes and making sure that you have checkpoints to eliminate bias at all those you know, points in the processes and then holding your teams accountable for the outcome just as you would with any other uh, business imperative. So really, I mean, leaders have to lead diversity as they would with any other business imperative with intentionality. And I think this, in, at the core, what I hear you say is to shift the mindset from we have to do this because of compliance and to not be caught in a lawsuit too. This will help us to be better at what we do. This will help us in our business. And so this is also good for you. So to kind of change the association of the entire topic. Yeah, I, that's absolutely right. You know, it'll, it's, you, have to, you have to give people what's good for them, what's in it for them. You know, how is it going to help you, right? It's not a diminishing returns. It's not a, you know, zero sum game. It has to be expansive. By doing this, it benefits everybody, including you. Even though you may not think that you're part of this discourse, you are, because it's going to benefit you as well. And you've got to be able to demonstrate that and prove that. But I will say, in terms of shifting people's mindsets, it's not only that, Karsten. It's also giving people experiences of being a minority that makes a difference. Um, and I, you know, I'll just share one or two examples with you. So one of the global CEOs, also a French man, um, we had a global strategy on diversity that was focused on gender because gender is something you can measure you know, globally. And then I did talk to him about race and ethnicity. And he said to me, he said, why are you diluting the focus? Because race does not translate everywhere. And he was right. You know, race doesn't translate the same way as it does in the U.S. U.S. is unique. It, you know, there, there is this, unique context of slavery within the United States and the historical legacy of slavery that's informed the experiences of Black people in the U.S. He is right about that. But that does not mean that discrimination based on skin color doesn't exist. It does exist you know, in every, most parts of the world. So I realized that I had to sort of give him an, an experience so he could sort of internalize it rather than show him the data and the facts that, you know, that goes only so far. So he attended an employee resource group. So as you know, in companies, very often you have employee resource groups based on like identities. And he attended an employee resource group meeting in Texas. Um, he was one of the only white men, one of the only French men in the room. And uh, so he attended this breakout session with 
African-American black men, and he listened to their stories of discrimination in life, you know, what they had been through. The combination of him being a minority in that setting, being very conscious of his French and his white identity, which, you know, I'm sure living in France, he didn't even think about it uh, in that context. And then also listening to these stories was a game changer for him. So he, it, you know, he obviously did some introspection. It shifted his perspective. And he really went on to lead with purpose and passion because until you know, leaders internalize the benefit of this and really have the experience. You know, I think it's important to leave this topic with purpose and passion. That's what Michelle Ondel did, you know, and uh, and so he sent this incredibly heartfelt message to the organization after the murder of George Floyd. Um, and, you know, and in talent discussions, he would bring up this, you know, topic of, you know, let's look at who we have in the successor pool, et cetera. So that was one. The other quick experience that I'll share is another leader who was in Europe. And I had shared a lot of data with him. You know, Sodexo had this business case where we had used data from 50,000 managers, over 70 entities around the world to look at gender balanced teams that were defined as teams with 40 to 60% women. And what we found was that in teams with less than 40% women, they underperformed. And teams with 40 to 60% women outperformed these teams on each one of the five key performance indicators. So client retention, retention, employee retention, employee engagement, safety, and financial outcomes. So he had seen all this, but, you know, was a naysayer. He, you know, was not particularly impressed. I know that he wanted to network with other CEOs. So I got him involved with a cross-company mentoring program with other CEOs. So he could network with them, but these were CEOs who were committed to diversity. So he could learn from them as well. And he mentored a woman and this woman, you know, he built a trusting relationship with her. She was from a different company, senior executive. She got laid off. And obviously she shared her experiences with him of being marginalized about, you know, being discriminated against, being the only woman in the C-suite. And after this experience, he came to me and he said, you know, I can't believe that women have these experiences in the workplace. This is unacceptable. I want every one of my 12 direct reports to mentor a woman from a different part of the of Sodexo. So they did. They, you know, sponsored or mentored. And these women, many of them, I think about nine out of the 12, went on to become country heads, heads of businesses, um, you know, gave them exposure. So this individual, obviously, there's there's something that, you know, listening to the lived experiences is very powerful. So it shifted his mindset and he became more of an advocate. So you can, you know, the business case and the facts and figures can only go so far, but you have to provide experiences. I mean, let me share one other very quick one. There was a, a leader who... Um, mentored a woman who managed a high security facility in a, in a company. And he, after mentoring her, she had a very different leadership style in the sense that she was low key. Uh, she was very collaborative. He came to me after the nine month engagement and he said, if you had presented me with two candidates, a male and a female, and told me to hire the best qualified candidate to manage a high security facility, I would have chosen the man. This is a dangerous environment. You need an aggressive, assertive style. But after mentoring her, she has a very different but a very effective style. 
I will never let my unconscious bias impact my recruiting decision. So you've got to give people experiences in addition to the business case and the facts and the data to move them. So, right. And then you asked me what the role is, right, of a chief diversity <laughs> officer. Oh, my goodness. So it sounds like it has a lot to do with, with the earning trust, first of all, uh, um, having uh, some advocacy, um, being an advisor, somebody that is listened to. It sounds like this was very important and then being very cognizant about where does this person stand and what would he need in order to come on board, kind of. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's about being a coach. It's about being a mentor. It's about being a confidant. It's about building trusting relationships. It's about influencing, a lot of influencing. Uh, it's about strategic, being strategic, being a strategic leader, to know what levers to pull. It's about knowing your material. It's about, you know, so when I joined, I had to build the trust. You know, remember, I was an Asian American. The lawsuit was one filed by Black employees, African Americans. I'm not African American. Um, I had to build trust with this group of leaders within the company, even though I was an outsider to them. And there were times when I questioned the wisdom of Michelle Londell of having hired me because I was not African-American. But, and I have to say that, and along with building trust with them, I had to build trust with the management, with the leadership. So, you know, there were times when I wondered, you know, do they, do the black leaders in this organization see me as, you know, representative of management or do they really see me as someone who is going to help to, to resolve the situation? Mm -hmm. Um, And I will say that if it was not the generosity of spirit of my black colleagues at Sodexo, I would not have been successful. You know, we were able to build a trusting relationship um, so that they became, you know, coaches to me, allies to me, uh, which I needed. You know, so I had not lived their experiences. I had my own share of experiences of being discriminated or being a minority, but not theirs in this potent con con historical context of slavery and discrimination in the United States. So yeah, it's many levels. And I do think you've got to be strategic and you've got to really understand the business and build a bridge between the business and your vision in a very practical way. So I think sometimes, you know, you have diversity officers who, you know, want everything, want to do everything, which is great. But how do you then phase it so you're able to do that in a practical way you know this picture behind me this woman with a beautiful hat right she is an african-american woman her name was dorothy height and she passed away she was a civil rights leader she passed away in her you know she was in her late 90s and she gave a talk once when she was 95 years old she was in a wheelchair she didn't wear glasses she didn't have a scrap of paper in her hand no notes And I remember her saying, she said, leaders are dreamers with shovels in their hands. And I've used that quote because that's really what chief diversity officers have to be. You have to hold on to a vision and a dream, but you have to be able to phase it for the company, meet them where they are and gradually and incrementally keep moving. That takes influencing, it takes strategy, you know, it takes advocacy, it takes all of those things. So time and a lot of energy i can imagine and a lot of frustration tolerance when you meet another naysayer and they are not yet there and 
what do you do with them right um okay the frustration is huge and i think a lot of people in this field get burnt out because they said we're tired we can't keep doing this again and again and again so yeah yeah i see that and rohini out of the, you mentioned this research that i find fascinating so between 40 and 60% gender diverse teams outperform the rest what happens when the team goes 60% and more female it's <laughs> a good question so the results start plateauing so they flatten out which is interesting because it's not that one gender is better than the other it's just that you need the mix so yeah. too much of anything <laughs> is mm -hmm. is not advantageous so the results flatten out okay that's it's fascinating and there's other tons i mean the good thing is that there is tons of other research out there um, exactly. that shows the i mean one female in the board two females in the board how that impacts the stock price market valuation yeah. different things i mean thanks god we have that data um but coming back to i mean other than in influencing um i mean part of the seriousness of that role was probably that you were reporting to michelle andel directly mm -hmm. um and you had a team was there any authority where you said some things have to be signed off by you you could you could veto things i mean was there any formal power or was all of that informal advocacy yeah so I, i'm i'm not sure that I don't know what you mean by formal power or info. I mean, it depends on the organization, right? So, um, because I was trusted, my recommendations mattered, right? So, I was able to make a recommendation. But Sirexo is a very consensus-driven organization. So, whether you know, if even if I thought the organization needed something, and if I went to Michelle Landell and I said this is what they need, he said yes. I still had to go back and get the buy-in from all the business leaders. That's just how it worked. So I did have authority, and the main thing, Karsten, is that I sat in the C-suite. So I had that lens to all the discussions that were happening, right? So when they were planning to do some reorg, right, and there were people that were going to be laid off, perhaps I could bring to the discussion, "Hey, let's pause. Who are these leaders? Is it that we're letting all the women go because they will, you know, join the organization later?" um you know we've we've got to be you know have you know be attuned to that or if we're looking at new markets you know we're looking at you know let's say the university market you know what are what are some of the things we need to be paying attention to i could bring a lens to say let's segment the you know the student population by generations and see what gen z is looking for let's segment that audience by international students and see what those students are looking for uh you know so those kinds of things um i was able to kind of inform in terms of you know day to day business and bring that lens to the conversation and it sounds like having access to data was also very important because without that data you couldn't do that counseling right absolutely yeah access to, i mean i had someone on my team who would work on the data because that's a starting point you know the, the issue is what are you solving for you know without looking at the data you can have ad hoc initiatives but it's the data that really informs what you're solving for <laughs> absolutely so and and rohini so the first step was to change the culture in the north america business unit but then you moved on and eventually became the global uh, diversity officer now this 
brings another a totally different layer of complexity. You were so Lexi was in eighty countries. You mentioned mm -hmm. uh, different continents, different cultural backgrounds, different historic background. Like I mean, mm -hmm. no no reference to slavery, uh, but other references. So right. how did you go about that? And what were some encounters where you meant where you noticed we cannot just roll out what we have done in the U.S. We need to we need to be more local. We need to be more. Uh, smart and, and sensitive to the situation in the country. Yeah, so Carson, there are different ways of doing this work, right? And it depends on the situation. So there's one way of doing global diversity, equity, and inclusion work, which is very local. Um, you know, and so if you think about a grocery chain, our whole Delhi's, right, which is in Europe, they have very, very local brands. They hire locally within a five-mile radius. The foods are for very local customers which is great, it's very local and it gets embraced locally. But if it is very extremely local, there's no roll up, there's no sort of you know, view across to see what the commonalities are, to see what the trends are. And also you don't, you know, you don't learn from cross boundaries or best practice sharing. The other is universal, which is very top down. And the It's cheaper, it's faster. And, you know, one example that I have is a um, food delivery company that with the best of intentions, they wanted to communicate out this sort of symbol of uh, LGBTQ equity globally for, for Gay Pride Month in June. So they sent this symbol out to all their countries, uh, including Egypt, where it's illegal to be homosexual. Um, and in, you know, obviously the employees there were reluctant to display that for their own safety, right? So with the best of intentions, it can backfire. So the approach that I have found very useful is sort of a transversal approach where you have a global strategy, global accountability, you know, maybe global targets, but very customized and local implementation. And I learned that, you know, it didn't automatically come to me. So one of the examples that I actually share in my book is, you know, I, as I said, I grew up in India. I went back to India to do this work for Sodexo. And, uh, you know, I'm, I was sitting in a room in these Sodexo offices with some entry and mid-level manager women. And I was talking to them about leadership development, about mentoring, and, um, I was met by these sort of blank stares. I tried speaking in Hindi, didn't connect. So I paused and I asked them, I said, you know, how can the company help you to advance your careers? Uh, you know, what can we do? How can we support you? And after a few minutes of silence, one of the women raised her hands and said, you know, we can't stay late to work on special projects or take any training because a mother-in-law expects us to be home and cook the evening meal and take care of the housework and take care of the children. So we're not able to do that. I was, it was an aha moment for me. You know, I had completely forgotten the multi-generational joint family situation in India. I'd completely forgotten the role of the Indian woman, not just as a daughter, not just as a wife, but as a daughter-in-law which is a you know, very major part of, of her role. Um, and I had completely forgotten sort of my own identity as a multidimensional being, focused very much on one aspect of our shared identity. So it was an aha moment that you really cannot take this 
cookie cutter approach of what's worked in one part of the world and and embedded it and promoted in another part of the world. So I, I you know, again, I I was so they were on a roll. They talked about this experience, and then I, you know, I sat back and I was just thinking to myself, you know, how do you expect the company to fix this? You know, so I asked them. I said, so what can we do? You know, to address that, and they came up with a solution. So they said, can we have an awards recognition day? And can we invite our extended families to this? It was amazing. You know, the mother-in-laws came, they saw the, their daughter-in-laws getting these awards. They were proud of these, you know, young women. Um, did it change the dynamic at home? Maybe a little bit, maybe once in a way they came home to a hot meal or if they were working late or worked on a project or a training, they weren't chastised. So, you know, that's sort of one very quick example of, you know, how you really have to, you can have a framework, you can say, I want to have a target of representation of women, but how that gets implemented has to be extremely localized. Was that your question? I forget. Oh, yes. When I, when I do storytelling, I forget the question. No, thank you. That, that was very enlightening. Yeah, that, that's a light bulb moment kind of. Okay. Um, so there was one term that you that you briefly mentioned, which I think is a very crucial term, unconscious bias. Yeah. Um, so can you talk to me about the power of this bias and also how do you actually address it? I mean, it is unconscious, meaning it people don't even know it's there. We are current, I mean, we are a small company, but we're currently going through an unconscious bias initiative to find out what our own unconscious biases are. And um I only learn now that, my gosh, I have more than I thought. Um, so wh what's your approach to, first of all, unravel it and then also to address it? Yeah, so I think, you know, you're right. I think we have unconscious biases. And I think for leaders, particularly to lead with that purpose and passion, they've got to really understand what those unconscious biases are, which often takes a sort of very painful work of introspection. But it's with that understanding that they can shift their worldview and you know see what the benefits are of this work. The example I shared with you, I think you know a lot of organizations focus on training. Now, you know I'm not disparaging training. I think it's one useful intervention. But I do think that it has to be put in the much broader context of systems change and changing people's mindsets. And I think it is giving people those experiences, like the man I mentioned to you who mentored the woman who was managing the high security facility, right? And he came to terms with his unconscious bias. I think it's those kinds of experiences that help in you know help people and and you know the book i have a lot of examples you know the other so it's giving leaders those kinds of experiences to really come to terms with and oftentimes when it comes close to people they know and care about and they come face to face with that bias i think that's when it is rather than seeing it as an abstract um one particular leader actually I assigned him to be the executive sponsor of the LGBTQ employee resource group at Sodexo. Um, he definitely had a lot of unconscious and conscious biases against the LGBTQ community. So when this 
pairing happened, both the employee resource group was surprised and he was surprised, but to the credit of both, they worked at it. These are people who he knew and he got to kind of learn about their life at close quarters. When he left Sodexo, he said that the biggest learning moment for him was when he was assigned to that employee resource group and really came face to face with some of his own unconscious biases. So I think it's, you know, meeting, honestly, it is meeting people where they are and sort of shifting them along incrementally. But I'll say one thing, you know, I've shared a lot of stories about lived experiences. And I do think that leaders have to be very conscious of the drain and exhaustion it takes for people to share their lived experience again and again and again. It's like coming out of the closet every single day. And it takes a lot of energy and it is exhausting. So I think, you know, leaders have to maximize how they utilize those lived experiences and they ultimately take, you know, responsibility for their own learning. Mm-hmm. So, so what I hear you say is also that a, a mentoring program is not only good for the mentee, but it is also good for the mentor because uh, they get yeah. confronted with their own way of That's thinking. It. Absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. And, and then, Rohini, you, you moved on. At one point, you decided to leave. So Dexo open another chapter in your life and you spent some time to write down your experiences, your, uh, your successes, your setbacks in, into a book. And uh, I mean, I've, I've been you know, writing 10 books or so, and, and I know the, the process is, uh, shall we say, an interesting one and, and uh, painful <laughs> at times. But what I find interesting is also when you have one career, how to distill mm. uh, findings that are universally applicable. So you you found five kind of key, shall I say, principles um, of working with diversity, equity, and inclusion on a global scale. Can you can you walk us through briefly? Sure. No, absolutely. Yeah, so as I said, you're right, it's, it's challenging to distill, but these are the five principles that showed up regardless of which part of the world I was doing this work and showed up because, you know, I, I did a lot of work with clients as well, both in Sodexo and outside, you know, outside Sodexo, so before and during my career in Sodexo. So these five principles, as I said, you know, they, they provide this sort of through line and they are basically make it local. So, you know, your strategy has to really be anchored to the local context, the laws, the history, the culture. But with that understanding, you also have to push for change. So localizing your strategy does not mean shying away from the you know, difficult work of disrupting the status quo. So it's, you know, understanding the local context, but pushing for change, but doing so in partnership with local change agents. So they, they know how and when to enter the conversation. And I have examples there from Saudi Arabia of one of the leaders and how he increased the representation of women there, um, you know, coming from the outside, pushing for change, but in partnership with the locals. I also have an example of some companies in Singapore and how they pushed for change when it came to the LGBTQ community in Singapore, which is not a gay-friendly country. So, you know, that's the first one. The second is what I call leaders change to lead change. And this is about, you know, transformative leaders basically that lead with purpose and passion do so when they've internalized the benefit of diversity to themselves and to the organization. And they have to lead with intentionality like they would any other business imperative. 
But sometimes to get them there, you have to provide a disruptive experience that disrupts their worldview and allows them to think with a multi-dimensional um, you know, lens. So how you get leaders there, meet them, and what their ecosystem or beliefs are, and then incrementally move them along. But ultimately, leadership at the top is absolutely critical. The third is, and it's good business too. So these you know, principles are simple, but they're very disruptive because they contain a lot of sort of meat and substance and experiences and anecdotes in them. Um, and it's good business too is about having a change narrative. You know, as you know, Carter says that 70% of change initiatives fail without having sort of a change narrative. So creating that change narrative is very important, but that can't be siloed. It can't be bolted on. It has to be core to the purpose and the business of the organization. The fourth principle is go deep, wide, and inside out. So diversity really has, you have to take a systems approach and embed it deep and wide and within your internal systems and processes and the external ecosystem as well. So you have to see the organization with champions and also see diversity in all your systems and processes. And then the last is know what matters and count it. So having clear metrics that are localized to the you know, local environment because metrics also differ, um, but also holding your teams accountable. So those are the five principles. And unlike you, this is my first book. And it was a very interesting experience because the book ended up very differently than where I started. You know, I thought this was going to be a more of a, you know, nuts and bolts how-to book. But I realized as I wrote it that what was interesting is my own personal journey and my own growth on this topic. So I'm very transparent about that. And also what's interesting is the mistakes I made and the missteps that I had in doing this work, because I think people can learn from that as well. So it's sort of the two meta stories behind the story. That and writing a book important. is a very, writing a book <laughs> is a very transformative process in itself, isn't it? That's it. Um, out of curiosity, can you share one of that, that activities that didn't yield the results that you wanted? Um, in doing this work, yeah. Yeah, like so, the setbacks you mentioned. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I, I think there were so many, actually. <laughs> you know, the one that I can think of that I'll share is when I started doing this work initially in France, the executive team was largely French. And what had worked in the U.S., I thought, would be a very interesting way to approach it, which was bringing clients in. So, so you know, when we talk about belonging, you often talk about belonging, employees belonging to an organization. So this culture of inclusion and employees feeling a sense of belonging. But I think there's also a sense of belonging of companies, belonging to an elite group of companies that are committed to diversity. And that it becomes the draw for companies. So that was something that I thought, you know, figured that for Sodexo, that was a real draw to bring in client organizations that have done a lot of work on this topic that are sort of diversity elite companies. And Sodexo will listen to them because this is a client organization. So we want to basically meet our clients where they are. And that had worked very well in the US. So I thought, you know, this is a great way to enter and, you know, start the dialogue globally and in France, et cetera. It was a good way. It was a good strategy. And I was very mindful that I shouldn't get people that were American. So I, you know, picked someone who was British. I picked, you know, somebody who was French. I had a good mix of individuals from different companies. What I didn't realize is that all the companies that I chose were American companies. 
So right there, there was this sort of dismissing. Yeah, this is, of course, an American thing. It's American companies. Even though the people delivering those messages were done, that work were not American. It was still dismissed as, you know, you know, this is an American thing. So I learned very quickly that I cannot take, you know, even despite how successful we had been, I've got to bite my tongue and not use that as, you know, a conversation starter. I've got to be very mindful of who I put there, the companies I put in front, the individuals who are, you know, speaking to the audience. Uh, I, I, you know, had to be extremely careful so that it would not be dismissed as another U.S. export or act of imperialism on the world. You know, <laughs> it had to be. It had to be something that was more, more organic and and. Uh, um, more local. So that definitely was. <laughs> it really sounds that half of your career had to do with diplomacy, uh, to being very <laughs> diplomatic true. with everything. Very true. <laughs> yeah. And Rohini, you mentioned that a lot of diversity officers uh, find it hard to cope with the frustration, with the setbacks, yeah. with the resistance. Um, what can companies do in order to maintain their health, uh, to keep them? you know, happy in doing their work and not have them burn out eventually, which can't be anybody's intention. Yeah, so I think, you know, I mean, I think, first of all, companies really need to be mindful of the scope and role and role that a diversity officer plays, regardless of whether they have a team or not. You know, this is a big role. You're talking about small teams, sometimes of two and three people that are responsible for changing the culture in an organization in a global company. So I think that, you know, they've got to be mindful of, of the, just the scope of that role, provide the right resources, you know, for the individuals doing this work, but also help them to find allies because this is not work that one, I mean, this is not work that I did. It was basically changing and enrolling allies who then helped to spread the messages. I mean, it's not, a one team or one person job. It really is how you partner and get allies who can then carry your messages forward. That's how it's effective. It kind of creates this, you know, ripple effect in the organization. So providing allies, I think is important. Recognizing that, you know, the toll it takes, recognizing the accomplishments, providing resources. But I think it's up to the diversity professionals to also take care of themselves and, you know, find their community of support. Uh, that can help. Um, you know, for me, I'm I'm a workaholic, even from when I left Sodex, so I continue to work maybe even more busy than I was um, because this is, you know, what I enjoy doing. But I have a family that provides me a lot of rejuvenation. Um, and, you know, remember that people have different thresholds around work. Um, I have a very high threshold for work. So it doesn't drain me, it energizes me. But then I have, you know, travel that I enjoy. I have my family, uh, reading. These are things that, that help me to decompress and keep me. And that's an true. incredible community. So that, that's helpful. And Rohini, today you coach and mentor chief diversity officers. Um, when do you say this is a lost cause? You... You are on an alibi position. There's no way in hell that you're going to make this. Is there any criteria where you say, leave the company right now? Um, <laughs> I don't 
don't know about criteria, but I have said that. I have said it. Um, I mean, I've said to people that, look, you know, when they've gone into organizations and they said, you know, I really don't want to go there because I don't see any commitment. And I, I just said, well, take it and see what you can do, you know, how you can influence the situation. But at one point, when you have people who are trying to sabotage the process, or you have leaders who really are, you know, not getting it. And uh, I've also, well, actually, I've said to, to diversity professionals, when they're just figureheads to keep the company out of trouble, it's not worth it. You know, it's not worth it. If you're just there to signal to the world sure. or the community that, oh, we've got somebody and this person is a minority or this person is a woman and this person is black and, and therefore we're okay that, you know, it's not worth it. So I have. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for, I, I learned a lot, Ruini. Thank you so much for taking us on that journey with you. Um, as you know, the tradition in this podcast is to ask that final question. So Ruini, what haven't I asked you yet? Ah, what have you asked me? What is the future of this work? That's what you haven't asked me yet. And it is a great question, isn't it? So what <laughs> is the future of this work, Ruini? So I'm actually very hopeful. I'm hopeful and for a couple of reasons, Karsten. One is, you know, I think that, you know, companies have, have put a lot of money behind this, which is great. They've made appointments of diversity officers, which is great. They've made lofty statements, which is great. But sometimes that's the easiest thing to do. It has to be a lot deeper than that. And I'm hopeful because I actually think that with the horrific events that happened in North America and then globally, right, with the murder of George Floyd and other Black men and women that was shown on video and then went viral, people who were on the sidelines are now allies, you know, people who, you know, maybe hadn't thought about this deeply or, you know, didn't believe it are now saying this is, this is shocking. Okay. So we have more allies now than ever before. So that makes me very hopeful that I think things will change, but in order for things to change, I think, you know, I think one is sort of at an individual level, Karsten, I think that We've got to expand how we look at identity and include intersectional identities. So when we look at women, we have to acknowledge that women have different experiences based on who they are. As an Asian American, I have a different experience than a black woman. Or, you know, as, as a cisgender woman, I have a different experience than a, a lesbian. So I think we've got to look at these things through an intersectional lens. That's one. I think at an organizational level, you know, I would say that we've got to be bold and audacious at how we disrupt these systems that have advantaged some and disadvantaged others. And I think this sort of disrupting the status quo has to become a normalized part of the conversation, even when it's not breaking news. So, we, you know, we've got to be able to talk and do these things, disrupt these systems. And I think what makes them so tenacious is that leaders sometimes don't even know how they got to their positions because mm -hmm. it's, you know, so I think we've got to be bold. Leaders have to be bold and audacious and making this sort of a normalized part of conversation. You don't want that breaking news to then, you know. Plus, I think that, you know, with the divisive society, I think we've got to figure out a way of bringing parts people together so everyone sees that they're in this discourse together. 
Mm-hmm. And then I think, you know, on a societal level, I just think, you know, the the private sector has a big role to play in speaking out about events, about things. I mean, we've seen that in Ukraine, we're able to do it, right? That companies have withdrawn, uh, you know, uh, from business in Russia. So we're able to do it. I just think we've got to do it more um, on social justice causes, organizations have to. So I'm hopeful because I think we're moving in the right direction and I'm hopeful that that we have more allies. So I'm very hopeful that that things will continue to change. And this particular field is going to, it's, you know, I mean, at one time I used to say that, you know, the, the end game is to work myself out of a job. I don't see that happening in many lifetimes because these things evolve and change. Yeah. And, uh, I, I think it's human nature. We've got to continue to keep working at it. So I love your outlook and your, your positive spirit. It's infectious. So thank you so much for that. Um, Rohini, I mean, that was that was great. Thank you so much. Thank you for, for having the time for this call. And I wish you all the best. Uh, stay healthy and hopefully see you. Well, actually, I think May 30, um, there is a conference uh, where you are kind enough to speak. I'm, I'm already now looking very much forward to that. Great. Thanks, Karsten. And thank you for your superb facilitation and for your questions. Appreciate it. Um, it was just spot on. So thank you. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you, Rohini. Bye-bye. Bye. That was very insightful, wasn't it? What I found particularly interesting was how to create heat moments for leaders where they experience how it feels to be not part of the majority to be reduced to a box that is reserved for a particular minority in a particular setting. I think that experiential element uh, where leaders um, kind of feel what, what people feel that are part of minorities or under, underrepresented groups, um, that this really can make a change and I can fully connect to that, that those were also some moments where that had a big and lasting impact on myself. So I find this very, very inspiring. And also I really love that energy that Rohini brings, that, that positivity, that, that optimism, relentless optimism, uh, all despite of all the adversity, of all the setbacks, of all the tragic things that happen out there and happen out there right now looking into the U- Ukraine. Um, so really that, that positive spirit is, is really helping kind of uh, carrying out this this important work. So what did inspire you? What were thoughts that you are taking away? Please share your thoughts with us. Um, leaders talk at leadership-choices.com. Uh, please feel free to send us a mail. Um, please feel free to share your recommendations, um, your feedback, your suggestions for improvement with us. Um, we would appreciate to hear from you. Thank you so much. Stay well. And uh, looking forward to see you or hear you soon here on this podcast. Bye for now. This was an episode of Leaders Talk, the interview podcast portraying leaders who are committed to better leadership, better organizations, and a better world, powered by Leadership Choices. If you want to give us feedback, please send an email to leaderstalk at leadershipchoices.com. Thank you for listening.